So we're talking about the Holy Spirit here tonight. might be good if we start by invoking the Spirit. So, uh, Holy Spirit, we ask you to be present here, accomplish your will here, uh, draw us closer to you. I pray, God, that this uh, time would be clarifying uh, where, where people are foggy and uh, even more importantly, God, that it, it would maybe open up a door for some of us who need it to draw closer to you, to be more aware of you, to walk in step with you, to be led by you, be empowered by you. Um, so just accomplish your will here. We yield ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Funky thing about the Spirit, funky thing is this. As I will be preaching this weekend, uh, the Spirit is the one who has uh, is the bond of peace that is to unite the church. Uh, and you find that quite a bit in Paul's letters, that the Holy Spirit is the one who unites us, and we're to yield to that. Um, and yet, this topic, the topic of the Holy Spirit, has been one of the most divisive things uh, in church history. It, it goes right also to the very beginning. In fact, you can see it even in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. You know, they, they've turned the gifts of the Spirit into some kind of a contest, and, and, and it's causing all sorts of trouble, so he's got to put you know, boundaries around it and, and rules around it and stuff. Uh, in the second and third century, we had an outbreaking of kind of the first charismatic movement. Some folks thought that the gifts of the Spirit were dying out, and so this group came along uh, and said, you know, that we need to recover the, the Holy Spirit and power, the, the Montanists, they were called. Uh, and they had some other wacko things going on there, um, but uh, it caused some divisions in the church. And in contemporary times, uh, well, you go through long periods in church history where the Holy Spirit's virtually ignored. Because that's the safest way to do it, you know. And in some circles, I hardly hear anything about the Holy Spirit uh, because, you know, you don't want to let that open up that Pandora's box, the Pandora's box of the Spirit, spiritual Pandora's box. Bunch of trouble comes with that. So, you know, folks have often gone through long periods of time where they just sort of ignore it. And there's large segments of the church today that kind of do that. Uh, even this attitude of, you know, don't seek but don't forbid. Uh, it, it's a way of, of just sort of avoiding the issue. Um, we don't really want it, uh, but if it happens, it happens. Please, God, don't let it happen. Uh, and, and some of that's because they see some of the crazy stuff that goes on uh, in, in the name of the Spirit, and they get uh, kind of worried about that. One of the uh, central struggles I had earlier on as a Christian uh, was, was dealing with this. Because um, I was saved in a really hyper-Pentecostal church. Um, and I kind of I migrated to a more sane version of Pentecostalism over time. But I have seen some really crazy, destructive stuff done in the name of the Spirit. Uh, really, and manipulative stuff done, and phony stuff done. Uh, and just, and it makes you want to just quit it all. Uh, I, I really just like, I don't, I'd be happy if I never saw that again. Uh, but that, I don't believe, is an option for us. Uh, if, you know, we always have to be careful of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, as I always say around here. And um, if God's got something for us, and the Holy Spirit is a big thing that God's got for us, then we need the Holy Spirit in all of his dimensions and all of his truth. Uh, and um, we need to learn to walk in the power of the Spirit. And we need to do, learn to do that in a balanced way. The answer to abuse, abusing spiritual stuff is not to get rid of the spiritual stuff but to stop abusing it and to do it in balanced ways. And so that's kind of been a theme that we've really tried to stress throughout this whole summer on the Holy Spirit. So tonight we're here just to uh, take whatever questions that you've got. Uh, 
any remaining questions that we haven't addressed in the series or things that, that uh, we addressed but maybe weren't yet clear to you or whatever it may be. Having said that, Paul, you want to add anything to my little summary intro? Well, I, I mean, it's interesting hearing about kind of your context coming out of that. Mine was almost the opposite. I, I grew up in a church um, in western suburbs of Minneapolis. And uh, <laughs> I think the first time I ever knew there was such a thing as people who did things we talk about today, like charismatic or Pentecostal, was my, my dad came home and he said he had a new uh, secretary at work and he described her as a holy roller. And I didn't know what that meant. And he said, well, Paul, there's, there's, there's some people in some churches. Now, Paul, they're nice folk, but we don't go to their churches. <laughs> they, get, they get a little crazy there. They roll, you know. And so that was kind of like, okay, we don't do that. And so um, a few years later, uh, we're at my church. Um, there's only like 70 of us. Like on, a, like on Easter, there's 70. Like it, that's as big as it got. You know, it's really like a family. And my pastor of this church went away one weekend to a conference and came back and shared that while he was at this conference, he had had this experience of speaking in tongues. The next year of our church's life, well, the church only lasted a year. Within one year, that split because our pastor had experienced speaking in tongues. Now, everything I could tell from him, I was only 12 at this time, but from what I remember, he was careful, he was balanced. Uh, he wasn't being weird. He just shared this thing, and so many people uh, could not even fathom the idea that our pastor would do something a holy roller would do that the church couldn't even survive that experience and so hmm. my experience was oh this topic it, it destroyed my church it got close friends to never speak again and so I just for years wouldn't want enough to do with this topic hmm. um, until God landed on me one day so we'll get to that later <laughs> God, you God surprise me loosen up loosen up loosen <laughs> yeah exactly Coca-Cola backwards Coca-Cola yeah, Coca -Cola. backwards <laughs> So anyway, thank you all so much for being here tonight. And like Greg said, please feel free throughout the evening to text your questions in. I will get them right here. And um, if you cannot do that, just write it down and run it up, and we'll get to as many as we can. So first off, pretty generic. Um, one person wrote in that they were nervous when they first heard that we were going to be talking about the Holy Spirit all summer long. <laughs> because they've seen and heard a lot of weird things in other churches, things like people laughing uncontrollably or dancing all around or claiming that God turned their teeth into gold. What do you guys think about these sort of things? You had a gold tooth, don't you? I didn't. I, I never had any turn to gold. <laughs> Janice one time played one of the all-time <laughs> best true. April Fool's jokes on me by convincing me that she had a filling that turned to gold because she does have a gold filling. And she set it up elaborately and whatever, because I had been complaining about all this gold filling stuff happening. And then, uh, anyways, she, I got stung. I was burned bad. <laughs> Which has happened, what, about a dozen times from her. She is, she is a nasty around April Fool's, around April 1st. Um, you know, I, I have, I, 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 I get the, the irritation. I don't know what to do with us stuff. You know, you have, you have, it, it, it goes in kind of waves. It seems to have died down now. But in the late 90s, in the early part of this century, uh, people were always saying that their feelings were turning to gold. Um, it, it was like the miracle that happened at all these revivals. That, that and then gold dust descending on people uh, over and over again. And I just could never lie for me to figure out, okay, why does God do that? And, and yet people have, you know, this kid can't walk and he didn't get healed. And, you know, it just seemed like maybe 
But I suggested Janice says, if God turns your teeth to gold, that's because you're supposed to pull it out and donate to the church. <laughs> <laughs> what other purpose is there for having a gold filling? You know, it's like, uh, so it, it confuses me. Um, and yet I have heard cases of people testify about stuff like that that seems very credible. I mean, they say they personally witnessed this. I met a couple, older couple that said that that actually happened to them at a revival. And they don't seem like liars. And so, there it is. Um, so I, I, my attitude is, 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 is sort of this. Uh, on the one hand, I'm not going to just credulously accept every claim that's out there uh, when these kind of weird miracle stuff happens. Um, I, I, I don't feel unspiritual for questioning it. Uh, but on the other hand, God is able to do weird stuff. You know, God does, we can't put God in a box. God wants to turn a silver filling to gold. He's, he can, it's his prerogative, you know. Um, and, and, and so I, I, I don't want to say it's all just a bunch of bunko, but I also don't want to say, oh, it, it must all happen uh, somewhere in this uncomfortable middle. And I sort of sit and assess things like that. I, I'd say the same thing personally about some of the other phenomena that goes on. Um, when I hear about people laughing in the spirit, uh, roaring in the spirit, sometimes called, I've seen that. Um, we had a guy at Woodland Hills Church in the early days who sirened in the spirit. And he wouldn't stop. That's the problem. Um, so here's the thing. On the one hand, I don't see any precedent for that in the Bible. On the other hand, I can't say that, it's a, that it can't happen. I actually had one time, before I ever heard about laughing in the spirit, when I was an early Christian, I had a, a, a time where I was just so full of joy, I, was la I, I, I laughed hysterically. It was in a prayer meeting and stuff, and I was just... And, I'd never seen it or heard anything about it, and it just erupted out of me. And so maybe I was laughing in the spirit. Um, and so I don't want to put an absolute box around that. As long as everything's done decently in order, okay? If you're laughing in the spirit in the middle of my sermon, I'm going to get ticked off, you know? <laughs> if you're at home in your bedroom laughing in the spirit, have at it, you know? Uh, or if you're in a prayer meeting where people understand that and you're not disrupting somebody, everyone's just, you know, maybe they're... But, um, because there's no biblical precedent for it, I'm cautious. Uh, but because God is God, I also have to be open to, you know, got some strange things sort of happening. And so I don't, I, even there, I don't want to just, uh, you know, throw it, throw it all away. Well, one other thing I'll say is this, that as I look at some of, and have been in some of the meetings where this happens to like everybody, um, uh, I am quite sure that at least some of it, and maybe the majority of it, and possibly all of it, is trumped up uh, under social pressure and social enthusiasm. You know, when you're part of a group, it becomes the sort of thing you're supposed to do. Uh, and, and, um, uh, and, and sometimes I think it's, it's just that. Because you go to one meeting and they just kind of giggle in the spirit. This meeting, they roar in the spirit. I, I, I've been in meetings where they like roar like a lion. And that's, it even sounds like, ooh, like is that joyful? Um, but that's sort of their shtick. Uh, you know, I, I was at a, uh, a conference for pastors. I, I got into the, this kind of wild charismatic crowd for a couple of years where I, they asked me to teach on, on spiritual warfare because they were really big on spiritual warfare. And I kind of legitimized their thing. Um, and, and, uh, and so I, for two years, I, I went to this group, and, and they're very well-known people. Uh, and there's a time where the, this well-known evangelist teacher guy 
called all of the ministers to come forward to the begin in front of this auditorium. And um, he's going to pray for us. And he starts over here. And he touches the guy, and immediately the guy goes down. And touches the next guy, and the guy goes down. And so on and so on. And I'm at the very end of the line, and there's probably 40 of us. And as he's getting close to me, I'm feeling the pressure to go down. Where you have to be slain. You can feel it. Everyone's expecting this, looking at it. If you don't, there's something wrong with you. And I'm feeling this. But I hate, hate, hate with a passion any kind of manipulation. I just hate it. Uh, and, I, and so I stepped out of line. It's like, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm to beat you to the punch. I'm going to sit down on myself. <laughs> Of course, that's why I never got invited back. That was considered insulting or whatever. But, uh, or there's another meeting I was at where the, there was this guy who would go around and everyone he touched, this is like a prayer meeting, a worship service is going on and people are just, all sorts of stuff's happening. So it's kind of chaos. And, and this guy, he would just walk through the crowd and everyone he touched would fall down. Um, and, and, and so that was bugging me. And I, I, this other guy who sponsored this whole thing, who invited me to this thing, it was, it was I don't want to give away too much impression. Um, but, but he was ask, I, asking how am I feeling about this, and I was saying I'm kind of uncomfortable for all the reasons I just gave here. And as we're talking, this guy comes and puts his hand on my shoulder, and I don't feel a thing. And so he just kind of greets me and goes on. Um, well, I think that's because, see, everyone knows this guy, and that's this guy's shtick. And I'm not even saying that people are faking it, or maybe they're doing it out of courtesy, but maybe there's a thing where they, they expect to fall down, so they actually feel the power of God or whatever. But, but, uh, or maybe I'm just so carnal that I didn't feel the power of God and fall down. <laughs> you know, all those are possible, but I really think there's a, a, a kind of a group thing going on there, and, and that, that explains some of that phenomenon. Phenomenon. I think, probably, uh, probably a longer answer than I need to give. But. That, that was quite an answer. Yeah. But it's an important, well, you know, at least a book topic. Right there. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think some of the things Greg said there are, are important principles. Um, there was a book done on this topic not too long ago that had different views on this in this book, and they're kind of dialoguing. And one of the people said their view was, he said, I don't know what to call it except this, open but cautious. And this person was trying to find like a balanced middle way on this to say, look, if God, God can do anything, kind of what Greg said, but just because God can do anything doesn't mean that he necessarily is doing something when someone says he is. And we have to have some sort of a, um, a discerning spirit in the midst of this. So I think that's not a, trying to find that middle ground, open, but also cautious and, and wise and that, that sort of thing. Um, it strikes me that one of the ways, what we really need, I think, is some criteria or what you might call some, uh, some spiritual tests to know, or at least to, to get in the right ballpark of, well, is this something that, that maybe I've got or is this something I should be a little cautious about, right? And it seems to me that whenever the gifts come up for Paul, whenever Jesus talks about uh, what we'll be doing for the kingdom, it seems to me one of the real criteria is, to use Jesus' words out of Sermon on the Mount, by you, their fruit, you will know them, right? I think when we start asking the question, well, what fruit is coming out of, say, a ministry that specializes in this or a person that kind of pushes this, it might be that really good fruit is coming out. We need to pay attention to that because it might just be that we're uncomfortable with it, but God is using it to bring some really cool fruit. On the other hand, if all the fruit that's coming out of it is, is sort of someone's ministry is getting high profile or whatever, whatever, I think we got to look at that because always the fruit is about glorifying God and bringing and blessing others in the kingdom, right? Um, 
And again, just ways of being wise about this stuff. The other thing that, that, that concerns me about a lot of these revival things, when you, you have all that chaos happening, like that service I just told you about, as far as I can see, when Paul talks, and I talked about this two weeks ago, when Paul says, when you come together, you know, everything is to be done for the edification of the body, for the building up of the body. And that's why he says, okay, you can speak in tongues, but one at a time, and it's got to be an interpreter. And don't more than three, because you don't want to take up the whole service. Same thing with prophets. And the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet. And everything should be done decently in the order, because God's not a God of chaos. Well, it seems to me, because if you're all speaking in tongues at the same time, and someone comes in who's an outsider or a seeker, they'll say, you're mad. You're all insane. Well, if you apply that criteria to these sorts of meetings where people are jumping over pews and spinning and rolling on the floor, falling down, roaring, whatever, uh, they don't fit Paul's criteria. Uh, The people are being individually blessed. And Paul's not against that. He just says, do it at home. He says, I speak in tongues more than you all. And and in that same chapter, he says how the the person who speaks in tongues, they build up themselves or they're strengthened by it. Uh, But no one else understands what they're saying, so no one else benefits. So be strengthened, okay? Be blessed, but do it in private. You're not taking up people's space. When you come together, everything's supposed to be for the good of the whole, and these meetings don't seem to at all meet that criteria. And if you're an outsider coming in, uh, watching this, you'll think these people are crazy. You know, they're nuts. But see, having said that, I still have to say God is able to transcend those rules. On the day of Pentecost, everyone spoke in tongues at the same time. So that would have violated Paul's rule. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's even there, I have to say, I can't just automatically dismiss it all. Um, God can be in it. So you guys have alluded to tongues, and we have quite a few questions regarding that. Yeah. So maybe we'll that that tends to be kind of the big one. Yeah, that's kind of a, a big, big, big one. Um, I've heard TV preachers talking about speaking in tongues and how important that is for all Christians, but I've never experienced that. Is this something that I should be asking God for? Should every mature Christian be able to speak in tongues? Ah, uh-huh. thank you. Great right way. Uh, so this question um, really has been for the last 116 years. 1901, they say, is when the um, beginnings of the Pentecostal movement um, began, where uh, some say it was in Topeka, Kansas. Some say it was in L.A. and the Azusa Street. Either way, probably it was both places, where groups of Christians were praying, um, just seeking God, kind of seeking revival. And in the midst of these contexts, some people just started speaking in tongues. And um, uh, out of those, those revival movements, this, this sort of fire began of, of, of Pentecostalism. And, and, and for Pentecostals, the actual Pentecostal denominations like Assemblies of God and such, speaking in tongues became, and still to this day is, they would, they would teach a um, North Central University, for example, as an AG school would say, um, tongues is the initial evidence of having been baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so if you have not at least spoken in tongues once in your life, that's evidence you have not been filled with the Spirit to the degree you could. They're not saying you're not Christian, not saying you don't have the Spirit, but just that there is this experience of baptism or complete filling of the Spirit that um, comes, and when it comes, you, you know that it comes by, by speaking in tongues at least once. And usually they'll say, usually you're actually given a prayer language now that is your language to be able to use to pray to God for the rest of your life. 
uh, at will. Um, that sort of um, doctrine that arose amongst Pentecostals was, of course, reacted to very strongly by many other denominations. So it became an either-or thing. Either you're Pentecostal and speak in tongues, or you're not Pentecostal and never speak in tongues. Um, and that's kind of a lot of the background to this, this tension that's been there. Um, from Woodland Hill's perspective, um, and I think, I guess you could say Woodland Hills does sort of take an open but cautious approach to this thing in terms of how we've thought about these things. We would say that we don't believe, as we read Paul's text, particularly 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, where he really gets into these gifts stuff, we don't see Paul ever saying that there's one gift that everyone should have. Rather, we see Paul saying quite the opposite. In 1 mm -hmm. Corinthians, the end of 12, he actually goes through this list. Do, are all teachers? Are all apostles? He goes through the whole list, and finally goes, do all speak in tongues? And clearly the rhetorical answer to every one of his questions is no, because not everyone is apostle, not everyone is a teacher. Um, so for Paul, not everyone does speak in tongues, um, but Paul's clear in chapter 14 that to speak in tongues is a blessing, that it, Greg said it builds up the inner person, that if there's a, a, a message spoken in tongues and someone interprets it, that it can actually bless the body is a prophetic word from God. So um, we're trying to find that sort of Pauline... 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 way of affirming tongues for the gift as a gift that God does give to some people, but not a gift that if you don't have it means you're somehow a second class Christian mm -hmm. now. You, you don't quite got the edge that the tongue speaker has. That we, just, we just don't see that in Scripture. Um, so, in answer to the question, I'd say, well, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, uh, I urge you to seek all the gifts, like seek gifts. He even says, seek the higher gifts. Uh, but he does say, I wish you all you know, spoke in tongues as much as I do. See, Paul's totally pro-tongues. I would say to this woman, hey, if you have a heart and desire to have this um, ability to speak in another language to God in, in prayer, for sure ask God for it. Seek it. Go ahead. God loves to give gifts to his children, right? But the next question, uh, was it, do all, should all mature people? Or should every mature Christian should be every able mature... to speak in tongues? Right. So I'd want to say, well, speaking in tongues... For, I, we don't believe is the sign of maturity necessarily. One, one could be a, a wonderfully mature Christian and have other gifts than speaking in tongues. Um, and so it isn't like the litmus Conversely, test. Conversely, you can speak in tongues and be very immature. And be immature. And the Corinthians are an example of yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> right. So it's, uh, right. yeah, the, the most important thing is, is that, that uh, no one should feel proud of the fact that you speak in tongues. It doesn't mean squat. No one should feel deficient because you don't. Uh, if anything, Paul says, you know, desire the gifts, zelao, be zealous for the gifts. And he says, especially the gift of prophecy. So if there's one gift that stands out, it's the gift of prophecy. So you shouldn't feel proud of that or deficient either if you don't have it or proud if you do have it. Uh, it, it it's not about that at all. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago in a message, um, I, in the 40-some years I've been a Christian, uh, have never observed any correlation between People who speak in tongues and maturity level, uh, like th th there's some kind of correlation there. Those who do strike me as roughly, some are mature, some aren't, just like those who don't. It's kind of a wash. Uh, and so I, I think there's even empirical evidence that it's not to be considered a sign that you've received the whole thing. But, but in some circle, you know, people can, can it, that assumption can permeate a person's uh, theology deeply with, without them even knowing it. Um, I, there's a person who goes to church here uh, who is kind of new to the church the last year or so, but at one point asked me some, uh, a couple months ago, you know, do you speak in tongues? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. 
And she said, I knew it. I, I, I. It's like, no, 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 no. You, you know, I, there's a special anointing there. See, it's that assumption that, that oh, you really arrived. Okay, you've, you're, you're one of us. It's like, we got to collapse that stuff all together. But to finish my story on that, so yeah, I shared with you, I was, I was pretty averse to this stuff. Um, had a number of years where I really walked away from God in my, my mid to late teens, early 20s. Came back to a, a, a real relationship with him in my, my early 21, 22. And the first group of folks, I was, I was at Bethel University, and the first group of kids I found my age who were like, seemed to really love God happened to be this Bible study. I didn't know this, but when I ended up there, they're, like, they're all speaking in tongues. Like I'm surrounded by at them. At Bethel? You know? Well, I wasn't at Bethel, but I should have stuck with Bethel. I went to this crazy Christian coffee house. That, oh. Well, anyway, so, so but here, I couldn't deny, though, that... These people loved Jesus in a way I don't think I'd seen young 20-year-olds loving Jesus. Mm-hmm. So I had this really mixed emotion like, oh, I love these people. And to this day, some of them are my best friends. Um, but why do they have to do this thing, you know? And so I'm going a couple times, and they find out I don't speak in tongues. You know, someone asked me, it's like, no, not really. And like, then I became the project. And like <laughs> six straight weeks in a row. At the end, they'll all look at me. <laughs> Can we pray, Paul? Yeah, whatever. So I'd get a whole circle around me and people laying hands. And, and at first it was just like, Lord, please, you know, just, just, just be open. So I was open. I, really, I, think, I, I think I was. I don't know. Um, and after a while began, well, you know, just help God out a little bit. Just, just, just loosen it. Like one kid got, loosen up your jaw. <laughs> so I loosened the jaw. And after six weeks, I think they just gave up on me as a hopeless case because it just never happened. What was weird, though, is about a year later, within a year, I was like a co-leader of this group. Still the only one that didn't speak in tongues in the group, but they liked my teaching or something. Uh, and so it just went on. They kind of just accepted me as one of this, this weird guy who can't do this thing. Uh, about three years later, I'm down my basement all by myself one night. You know where this is going. And I'm just praying, and out of my mouth, some syllables come that I did not intend to say. And I, I remember as soon as it happened, I, I thought, they got to me after all. <laughs> they just got in my head. It was just a matter of time. And then I was like, oh, was it that? Was it God? Is it the devil? I had no idea. Um, long story short, uh, through a process with God and talking to some people I trust, it turned out I, yeah, God gave me this gift. And I, I was uncomfortable with it. Still sometimes don't use it often, um, but it's... It was really a lesson from God to take me out of my, my past that my church had gone through and just showing me that, that, that he can do things, not when someone's forcing you to, but when you least expect it, and bless you. And um, mm-hmm. it was a humbling experience. Good, so. good. You know, well, I, I, I haven't... Uh, you mentioned how these folks in the coffee shop really seemed like they had a fire that others don't have. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I don't see any correlation individually between people speaking tongues and their maturity level. I, I do see that groups that are open and desiring and are using the gifts of the Spirit tend to be more on fire than groups that aren't. Mm. And that's why the, the Pentecostal charismatic movement is, is the fastest growing segment of Christianity today. in the world today. Uh, they just have a fire. And that's why I think it's important for us to be seeking the gifts and using them in the proper context, but uh, to be using them. So naturally, there's a little bit of um, trepidation about this very topic. And so as a follow-up question, we have someone who wants to know um, that they've heard, they say they've heard that demons can inspire the speaking in tongues. So is that true? And if so, how can you tell whether it's of God or whether it's of the devil? I've heard that too. Um, 
In fact, it, it, it's, the, the first instance of speaking in tongues that I know of in history um, is in Plato's Republic, where he talks about this Dionysian cult. I think it's his Republic, uh, which was this cult that would get together and they would have ritualistic orgies uh, at, at certain festivals, and that they would speak in uh, unintelligible languages or in utterances. Now, that may have just been, you know, some uh, totally unrelated to glossolalia. I don't know, but uh, and I have heard that. Uh, Paul and I have done quite a bit of research on the uh, possession phenomenon, not just in Christianity, but in other world religions and other tribes and stuff. And you have examples there of people who can speak in, in a different language. I don't know if you ever heard this, or this was an urban legend, but frequently when I was in my non-charismatic days, we would talk about the time when a guy came... Uh, uh, I think it was usually a, a gentleman from Africa came to a church, uh, came to a castle church, and heard someone speaking in tongues and then reported... They're blaspheming God in my African language back. Like, like, mm. So it's like, this is a live question. The thing has bothered yeah. a lot of people. How, how do you know whether you're praising God or blaspheming Him if you don't know what in the world your language is? It's a good question. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> Answer it, dude. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I always go back to this passage when Jesus says, look, at which of you fathers, uh, if your son asks for an egg, you're going to give him a scorpion? Um, and if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children when they ask, how much more will the Heavenly Father give you the Spirit when you ask Him? Mm-hmm. Luke 11. Uh, and so it, it, here's the thing. I, I imagine that Satan knows all human languages um, uh, and maybe can pass it on to demons. Who knows how that works in that, that realm? But it doesn't surprise me if supernatural beings uh, are able to speak in other languages or at least sound like they're speaking in other languages. So that shouldn't surprise us. Um, but if your heart, and, and, and you know, if you're into evil stuff and you're looking after evil, well then, that's when, if you start speaking in tongues, now it's a legitimate question. Is this of God or of the devil? And if you're doing evil stuff, it could be of the devil. But if, if you're seeking out of a father and, and you're just, you just want to be used by him and you want to have all that he has for you, if that's your heart intent, he's not going to allow you to be possessed by a demon and speak in tongues that way. So it's all about the heart motive. I don't think uh, Christians should ever worry about that if what you're seeking is, is uh, the, the will of God. This very question was the one I personally wrestled with as soon as that happened to me in my basement that time. It's like, again, is it just me because they're in my head, those guys? Is it God or is it really the devil? Like those were my kind of three options I was trying to assess. And what I did, I don't know if, you know, this is like, it worked for me. I, I said to God, if you gave me this, I don't want to ignore it. If you didn't give me this, I want nothing to do with it ever again. I said, but I said, how do, how do I know what to do? What I, said, what I said to him is, look, I said, Father, I'm going to use, I'm going to do this for about, for, I think I said a month. Please let me know by the end of this month whether the fruit coming out of it is good or evil, right? I, I just, I had to just trust him on this. And so I tried to consistently do it for about a month. And what I could not deny at the end of the month was that regularly when I would practice this, this uh, thing of tongues, it would, um, you know, Paul says it builds you up. I don't, I'm not sure like what him, he meant, but I know what I experienced. Whenever I would do that, I would feel a greater sense of God's presence, of his love. Um, I, I think that's still true to this day. Um, I, which reminds me, why don't I do that more? <laughs> but uh, to me, that was a kind of putting a fleece before God and saying, God, I don't want to be unwise here. Um, 
And for me, he, he answered me by the fruit that was born in my it life. It wasn't a fleece. It was typical of Paul. It was a research project. <laughs> <laughs> Let's investigate this for a month. Let's see here. Yes, okay. And then it's how he, how he goes about things. So with uh, spiritual gifts in general, do you consider the gifts named in Scripture to be a closed list? Mm, or point. is it possible that other specific gifts of the Spirit could be added? That's good. Good question. I think, I think what's important about... Well, that question, and therefore about the gift lists that we have in Scripture, you know, we have significant lists um, in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, uh, kind of the fivefold gifts in Ephesians 4, and then a couple in, in Peter. Uh, when you put that all together, or when you look at them separately, kind of put them in parallel columns, what you notice is not one of the gift lists in these four different places are the same. Uh, and when you start matching them, you see that you know, some lists have double gifts, but none of the lists are exactly the same at all. And so uh, I'm with Gordon Fee on this, who was a leading Pentecostal scholar, did an amazing commentary on, on the, this question of the Holy Spirit. He argues that what we seem to have in the gift list in the New Testament is uh, an ad hoc list every time. In other words, when someone's going to talk about some gifts, they'll write some of the gifts down, but they're not trying to do a, an exhaustive list of these things. So we shouldn't treat either any one of them or even the sum total of them as being the total number of gifts that God's ever given to his people. Uh, and I, I think that that's wise. I think that uh, I, I see things that God's done and gifts he's given to people that just aren't in those lists. And yet it's hard to deny that God's given that gift to these people. And so I don't think that they were meant to be this litmus test of the, the total. Because what happens then is we, I don't know if you've ever done a gift testing, if you ever get gift testing, often the only gifts they test for are the sum total of those lists also to boil down, to, which, which certainly isn't bad, but I think can miss a number of ways God gifts people in our culture today. So I spoke with a lady two weeks ago who, after the service, asked me this kind of question. Uh, she said that she frequently uh, has dreams that she feels led to share with people, and it often has a meaning. Uh, it sets a direction to their life or it sets them up to expect something or whatever. Um, and she says, you know, is that a gift of the Spirit? And I, if, if good fruit's coming out of it, um, I'd have to say yes. And, you know, Joseph seemed to have that. And, and, and so it would make sense if the Spirit was doing it back then, maybe it could be happening here. And, even uh, though a dream isn't listed in one yeah, of the Even gifts. though it's not listed in First yeah. Corinthians 12. Um, but um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's in Scripture, so... There again, my idea is, like, I, I, if there's no clear precedent for it, I'm not going to go an automatic yes, but I'm also not going to do an automatic no. You ask the question, well, what's the fruit of it? You know, like, mm -hmm. Does it have the kind of flavor that the gifts of the Spirit are supposed to have? What, um, this is kind of a follow-up. So this person wants to know about the more non-miraculous mm. gifts of the Holy Spirit and how do they know if they are gifts of the Holy Spirit mm. versus things that they've learned over time from their walk with, the, with God, like their God-given experiences or talents, um, like helps, administration, generosity. Should they be concerned with labeling that or mm. how do they know whether it's a God-given gift or if it's um, a gift of the Holy Spirit. I, I wouldn't be concerned about labels, except it might cause confusion. Like that, the gifts of administration helps, teaching, that sort of thing. Uh, they're not given the name charisma. Uh, it's only the, the charismatic gifts that he calls charisma. Mm -hmm. And those are supernatural impartations. Um, the, the other gifts are no less of God. They just are, they, they come through a different means. So 
whether God's given to you in the moment or whether God gave it to you as part of your basic constitution. You know, you're wired that way. doesn't matter. It's a God-given gift. And the important thing is that you're aware of that gift and that you're using it for the purposes of uh, building up the body and furthering ministry. Hmm. But generally speaking, the, the, the gifts in the other three lists tend to be ones that are more a function of our personality or our experience, you know, those kind of things. You just are that kind of person. And so you offer yourself, along with your gift, up to the church uh, to be used. I think even that can get a little tricky sometimes because... Don't you disagree with me? I'm going no, to right now. Don't right you now. dare. <laughs> I rebuke you. <laughs> There's times that things you'd say would be, oh, that's just a naturally wired sort of thing. For you know, mentioned administration or leadership, let's say, or I mean, I, I know you know someone who uh, learned guitar supernaturally, right? Like, That's true. Right? Yeah. I think of... Danny Churchill plays up here sometimes. Yeah. So we went on retreat, came back, he says, you guys won't believe this, but some people, a, a person in our youth group got like a word, you're supposed to be able to play guitar, prayed for him, and they picked up and started playing guitar, and it was absolutely incredible. It was, it was like yeah. unbelievable. Like you might... Think someone's either practiced or someone is just a mutant, but not Danny. It's just it came in a prayer. Yeah, he just there. Yeah, never um, played before. I even think of, you know, I I think I have the gift of teaching, but when I think about that, you know, that sounds like oh well, you just you know you wired, you like to be in front of people and talk, and you know you just whatever. It's like no, no, you don't know. <laughs> I I spent the first 25 years of my life ensuring I would never speak in front of anybody. I got through Bethel College. I was supposed to have a speech class, and somehow I just I didn't do it. But I finagled. I hated that. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, I, I back with Jesus, and this thing happens to me in over a year, period of a year where I can't talk about anything else in front of people. But as soon as it's about things of, of God, not only can I, I feel like I have to. And so for me, yeah, what here. would seem to be a naturally wired thing was just out of the blue, and it's not me at all. So it's it's I think. Even if it seems sort of like, well, that's just a natural thing. God can come and infuse that or even produce it where it wasn't there before. Certainly this guy got a sense of humor. So you spent the first 25 years of your life staying away from any kind of being in front of people. I spent the first 18 stuttering like crazy. Yeah. Now we're both public speakers. <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> there is a God, folks. This is real. <laughs> um, what role or relationship, if any, does the Holy Spirit have with non-believers? Can a person who worships a false god have any relationship with the Holy Spirit? Good question. Greg, you've done a lot of research on this. I have not. But what if, if you had, what would you say? Barbie, lack of information be a reason for me not to say something. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I, you know, the, the Spirit has a number of roles. Uh, we've been speaking specifically about the role that the Spirit has with Christians and with the church. But, uh, you know, in creation, right from the start, it was the Spirit of God that was hovering over the deep, uh, preparing it for the creation process. And you find um, uh, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God is often likened to the wind blowing over the whole earth, the Ruach Adonai. Um, and, and there's a universal dimension to everything God does. We're told a small story, but uh, there's a much broader story about what's going on out there. What, 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 you know, in fact, Paul says in, in Acts 17, I love this passage, that, that he says that uh, from the beginning, uh, God has you know, made all humans his offspring, and he's been working through the ordering and the timing of the rise and fall of all these nations, in order to get people to grope for him and possibly find him, even though he's not far from any of them, for in him we live and move and have our being. Yeah. 
And so, you know, the spirit is God on the ground here, right? Father is God transcendent in the infinitude, the incomprehensible infinitude of God. The Son is God incarnate, the face of God, the revelation of God, is his very character. And the Spirit is now the, 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 the aspect of God, the person of God, who applies all this on the ground. And so this is telling me that the Spirit is working everywhere, drawing people, wooing people, as far as is possible, given their cultural you know, limitations and restrictions and all that. Uh, God will draw them as much as possible within those con- conditions mm-hmm. to um, uh, get to know him. Which is why you sometimes find, um, in studying world religions, uh, once in a while they'll pop out in a remarkably Christ-like picture of God. Or they'll say some remarkable Christ-like things about him, which maybe even contradict all the other stuff that they say about God. But bam, there's a, a really interesting picture of God. And you even have some, this happens sometimes, and I'm told, especially in Muslim countries for some reason, but Muslims get dreams um, where they're visited by Jesus or they're told that someone's going to intersect their path and tell them about Jesus. And, and so the Spirit's like preparing these folks to, to enter into in the Christian faith. But one of the people I met over in Scotland when I was visiting communities there, and they have a, this whole ministry to these refugees from Iraq. Um, one of them told a story about this, how... Uh, they had a dream that they're going to meet a person wearing this, this particular kind of hat and that the person was going to uh, 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 tell them, uh, complete their, 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 their Islamic faith. And that's how sometimes these Christian Muslims talk about it, that, that Christianity is the completion of Islam rather than the, the negation of it. So anyways, uh, yeah, so God's working all over the place. And if God's all loving and cares about every person he ever created, of course he would be. Yeah. Now, what kind of parent would just neglect a, a child because you were born in the wrong place at the wrong time? Now, God's always out there working. I think to, just to accentuate what Greg said, uh, Don Richardson, who is a pretty well-known miss- missiologist, has written two books, uh, one called Peace Child, one called Eternity in Their Hearts, where he talks about um, his experience with Papua New Guinea, but coming to, to tribal folks, and he shares the gospel and finds out that they say, like, basically... God had set them up for this. Like, we've been waiting for someone to complete this story. And there's things in their culture that clearly are sort of antecedents to Jesus. Yeah. That then it's like, oh, this is what we've been waiting for. And then the whole tribe converts and stuff. So some really cool examples of that. Yeah, a good example of that in the Bible is Cornelius in, in right. Acts 10. Yeah. You know? yeah. Peter gets a dream that's supposed to go over and talk to this pagan. The pagan gets this dream that he's supposed to listen to someone who's going to come talk to him. And bam, shows up and... And the gospel happens, and the spirit falls, and they all speak in tongues. There you go. <laughs> they did. <laughs> they really I, 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 I wasn't joking. Yes. So based on John 14, 12 to 14, got it? Jesus said greater works. Yep. Yep. Okay. Ask me if you my name. <laughs> Was this only for then, or are we missing something? I went first last time, so now it's your turn. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the idea that what Jesus says, um, he's talking to his disciples right before he goes to the cross, and he says, hey, I'm leaving, but I'm sending you the Spirit, and, and greater works will you do than I have done. Um, if you ask anything in the name of the Father, um, it'll be done for you, right? So the question is, uh, was that just for then, or, mm-hmm. or are we, missing are we still, something? still to expect this today? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this raises the question, I think, that it is an important one coming out of a series like we've just done. It's like, wow, Jesus has all these amazing promises to his disciples then. But he, he actually, I think he says in that passage, maybe that chapter or chapter 16, doesn't he say, uh, and this isn't just for, for this 
uh, tribe of sheep, but for other sheep that will come. Like, he, what he's saying to his disciples isn't just for them. They're supposed to record it. He says the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance what I've taught you so you can share it with others. And here we are today, you know, recipients of this gospel. And we're reading these words in John 12 saying that greater works than Jesus. Like, do we realize what he's saying there? Jesus telling us that we'll do greater works than he did. How is that even possible? I think the only way he could like, be serious about that is when Jesus is thinking in his mind, well, I've come in human form, I've been filled by the Holy Spirit, and there's been one of me. As I go now to the Father and I send the Spirit to my church, there's more of them. There's like, we're all, you no, know, Christian means little Christ, like little ones like Jesus. So that this, this whole kingdom arises of, of kingdom people now who bring the power of the Spirit to bear. I don't think he was kidding. Uh, I, I, I don't see any reason to like interpret that text in a way that says, well, he just meant that for the 12 or maybe just the first century or something like that. It seems to me like it was for us today as much as anybody, which then raises the question, tough question, well, if that's true, why don't we see as much miraculous stuff as it seems that Jesus and his disciples saw? Um, I think there's... there's so, so the answer, my, my answer to that question is, it is for us today, not just for them. The tough question then lingers. So why, when I pray, don't I see the kind of success statistics that Jesus did? I guess I'd say a couple things about that. One is, let's remember that there are moments in the New Testament when Jesus doesn't see success, right? Mark chapter 6, it says he comes into Nazareth, and it says he prayed for a lot of people and couldn't heal, couldn't, the word is used, couldn't heal uh, many in the, his village that day. Except he healed a few, he says. And but he like, healed a few. That'd be my yeah. deal of revival. <laughs> couldn't heal many. But Jesus is striking out. I'd be like, whoa, yeah. I got one healing. Which go, and, and there's, you know, another time where Jesus um, has a blind guy and, and, and basically says, be healed, and says to the guy, can you see? The guy says, well, sort of, I sort of, I see kind of things looking like trees that are walking around. And Jesus has to go back again a second time, actually making some paste and mud. And, and so in other words, there's something about the, the, the reality of Jesus's life where there's variables, I would say. Even in Jesus's ministry, there's variables as to what happens when. Now, Mark tells us why no one got healed that day. It says, for they didn't believe. So it wasn't on Jesus' side that the problem was, is the people he was praying for weren't receiving, right? So there's, and then Greg is done actually, and you know, I, I don't love to like encourage this guy Sometimes or, you're forced or brag on him, <laughs> but he's done a really nice book called uh, Satan and the Problem of Evil. Also, if you can find it in his book. Um, he's got to blame. He's got to blame. Where he has a chapter on why do prayers not get answered? And I think, honestly, if, if your prayer life struggles, as mine certainly has, and even at times does, when it seems like, gosh, I pray and nothing happens, right? And it just seems, well, I, look, God's God. He's smart. Uh, he'll make it happen if he wants to, and if it shouldn't happen, well, my begging him isn't going to change anything. I think a lot of people think that way about prayer. Like, well, God's God. He's got it covered, right? Um, reading Greg's chapter on this, uh, why doesn't prayer get answered times, is really important. Because what he does, he looks through the scripture of all the reasons that turn up in scripture that tell us why a prayer might not get answered. Some of the time it is God's will, but most of the time it's other factors. Things like, like how many people are praying. Things like how persistent did it lead. Here's one phenomenon in our culture. I think we think if something's going to work by prayer, it should happen in about five seconds. <laughs> or maybe five minutes. 
Um, but the truth is, Jesus says, pray persistently like, like you're a woman uh, beating on the door of an unjust judge who doesn't want to hear your case at midnight. Uh, that kind of woman would pound all night long if she had to. And I think sometimes we, in this instant sort of microwave society, we, we stop short of actually persisting in prayer. And then Daniel 10, where Daniel's praying, God's saying yes, and the prayer doesn't happen because a demonic entity stops the prayer in the spiritual realm somewhere, things we don't even think about. So I think this is some of the things we need to consider. Why we shouldn't give up trying to seek a type of spiritual influence in this world that Jesus did. Just because we don't see the success of Jesus, there's reasons for that, and we can start to learn about those reasons and manage those reasons as best we can. You know, um, I'm always caught in this between, on the one hand, I want to give an explanation for why we don't see it as much, but also not letting us off the hook to keep on pursuing more. Then that's kind of the balance I want to hit. Um, the, the passage, you know, greater works that you shall do, as, as Paul was, was, was alluding to, that can be taken in a quantitative or a qualitative way. The qualitative would be more sensational works sure. than even what I do, you're going to do. Of course, that would require raising people from the dead, and how do you outdo that? You know, it's kind of like... Um, uh, or, but the quantitative is simply a greater amount of works, you know, gr- greater degree. And that's why, and that's the thing, uh, what I think he was referring to, because he says right before then, it's, you know, it's good that I go away. You're mourning, but it's good that I go away because I'm going to send the Spirit. Um, and now greater works you're going to do. So because Jesus' body just got, went global, okay? It's a globalization of Jesus' body. So the church is the giant Jesus, and to this day, I think that saying is being fulfilled. Uh, the church is doing greater works, a greater amount of works uh, than, than, than Jesus did. Just yesterday, I had a meeting with a young man, and he told me that his, uh, uh, in January, his wife was pregnant with twins, and um, the brother was growing normally inside the womb, but there's something going off with the, the daughter. Uh, she was getting, not getting enough nourishment. So they decided they were going to do a uh, uh, induced labor ahead of time. Uh, they're like four weeks from this happening. Well, the day before they were supposed to have it induced, she, her water broke. So she had to rush to St. John's Hospital. And uh, the, the, the boy was born uh, fine, but there was complications with the daughter, something with the placenta and entanglement, or, or it was just cut off. And then all of a sudden, they, they say, we have to do an emergency C-section, and they get the, fa- the, the father and mother have to leave the room. Uh, and it turned out that that baby had gone without any oxygen for 8 to 10 minutes. At least 8, could have been as much as 10, and came out totally lifeless. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did 20 minutes of CPR on this baby, and were able to get a faint heartbeat going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was it. So they came to the parents, and they said, we're very sorry. Uh, your baby is alive, but just barely, um, and uh, has a very faint, very faint pulse and very faint breathing, and we don't expect her to last, you know, more than an hour. Um, and we could put, do emergency measures, but we really think, given that the baby was without oxygen for 8 to 10 minutes, plus 20 minutes before she was resuscitated, you're going to have massive brain damage and nothing like a high quality of life, but the decision's yours. And they decided not to put her on emergency uh, uh, life support. Um, they, they then said to the parents, you might want to come and, and just say goodbye. And so the, two, the, the father and mother come to this little baby, and he has a, a picture of this baby, and it, the baby looked completely dead, just gray, 
I, lifeless, completely, no color at all. Um, but then he put his hand on, on this, this baby, and, and, that, and interestingly enough, um, he, he said he started praying in tongues. It was only the second time in his life he ever did that, and, and he didn't recall making a decision. He just started praying, and he was praying in tongues. And then uh, uh, at a certain point, he just said to this little newborn, lifeless baby, in Jesus' name, rise up. In Jesus' name, rise up. And the second time he said that, the baby all of a sudden arched its back like this, and it took a huge breath, like, like a gasp, and opened its eyes and was looking at him, taking this huge breath. And then began to breathe, you know, really hard. And the doctors were freaking out. And they come over here like, what on earth is happening here? You know, this, that's impossible. So this baby now can breathe on its own. And immediately says, you can see color starting to come into its, its, its skin and stuff. You just think, well, that's good news, except the baby has gone for virtually 28 minutes without, without any oxygen in the brain. The brain's going to be irrepar- irreparably you know, damaged. Well, that baby has grown up to be, it's now eight months old. And... Um, they just had a test done on the baby, a sensory test uh, that, that tells you, is everything operating normal? And the average for an eight-month-old is a score between 80 and 100, and their baby tested at 130. <laughs> now, it, and, and the baby has more vocabulary than eight months old are supposed to have. So, yes, they're, they, 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 they seem to be rare, but you hear about these incredible miracles. Um, and now you take that story, and stuff like that is happening all over the earth, the church is doing more than Jesus could do in his first earthly body. Having said that, uh, I would admit that this is the most frustrating area of my whole ministry because I want to have see more of what they saw in the book of Acts, and I'm frustrated by it, and I'm constantly pushing that direction, praying that direction. I suspect, you know, Paul talked about the variables in the, in the, in the spiritual realm. Uh, you know, there, there's, we're in the middle of a war zone. And, and, and uh, I, I think sometimes, as you look at church history, there are, there, there are outbreaks of miracles that happen sporadically. Like in the early church, for sure, bam, they're having all over the place. But then it slowly died off. But then you have these revivals that happen here and there throughout history. You, you can t- trace them. Um, and and uh, uh, they all, sometimes they, are, they surround one person who's got a gift, but sometimes they just happen to a bunch of people. And you hear these accounts, very credible accounts of these incredible miracles happening. And then the window seems to eventually shut. They never last for more than a generation. Um, and and the, the image I get, and this is just my attempt to try to make sense out of this, but it's like this whole world is under this dark, heavy cloud of demonic oppression. Uh, enough light gets through to open people's hearts and to, you know, uh, bring them into, into the kingdom and do some other things. Uh, but the, the, those powers are blocking the, the power that can demonstrate the miraculous dimension of, of the kingdom. But there are times where, for reasons we can never know, uh, a hole gets poked in the cloud. God working with his people is able to poke a hole in this cloud. The, the clouds open and the sun of the kingdom, sunshine of the kingdom comes down. And then you see the full demonstration that you see when, when Jesus was around. Uh, eventually the clouds cover up there. So whether that's true or not, um, I just say let's keep on poking at the clouds, man. Let's just keep pressing on and keep praying because uh, God's still doing miracles. More than happened in the ministry of Jesus. Amen. So I have a couple of questions here about what exactly does it, do we mean when we talk about being baptized in the Holy Spirit? And 
more specifically, what is Woodland Hills' stance on being baptized in the Holy Spirit? Yeah, right. Greg, what is Woodland Hills' stance? Yeah, yeah, I think you wrote, you wrote the last edition, so why don't you give it? Last, what, what? You wrote the statement, huh? I did? Yeah. Well, you were the final <laughs> editor of it. All right. If so, you remember. Baptism in the Holy Spirit. Um, John the Baptist, uh, right? When he, that's where this phrase comes from. He's talking about Jesus. He who comes will... Uh, he's talking about Jesus' forthcoming. He's talking about who he will baptize in the Spirit and with fire. I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize with spirit, spirit and with fire. fire. And um, it's interesting that that's the first thing he says about Jesus. So his baptism in the Spirit must be kind of an important gig. Yeah, yeah. Um, why I think the the question of baptism in the Spirit is is a touchy one for a lot of folks today. I alluded to this earlier. Is that uh, the Pentecostal tradition and the Charismatics following them uh, throughout the 20th century? associated baptism of the Holy Spirit with this tongues evidence, right? And so it's sort of become for a lot of people like, well, if you're, if you're pro-baptism of the Holy Spirit, that means you're a Pentecostal or charismatic and a pro-tongues person. And if you're not a tongues person or a charismatic or Pentecostal, then you're not into that baptism of the Holy Spirit thing. But here's the thing. Clearly, we all have to be into the baptism of the Holy Spirit because John the Baptist said when Jesus comes, that's what he's bringing. Jesus, uh, John baptized in water, but Jesus is going to baptize his people in the Spirit and, and with fire. And so I think we all have to be pro-baptism in the Holy Spirit, regardless of how you interpret that. Um, we at Woodland Hills, I, again, I alluded to this earlier, um, we believe that God is always trying to do, uh, to fill his people as much as they allow. Uh, I often think we get this idea sometimes that we have to sort of, you know, just beg God to give us a little more spirit. I heard someone say, look, we've got as much spirit of God as we want, and he's always trying to give us more. If there's a problem with the spirit, it's, it's, it's not God being stingy, it's us being resistant, right? Um, and all of us could, could, can, can grow in our openness to God and to his spirit filling us. But um, our sense is that that's, that's what he's talking about, that, that uh, Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 4. He says, be filled with the spirit. But in, in the Greek, the tense is there. It literally means be filled and be filled and keep on being filled and ongoingly be filled. Be being filled. Yeah. Be being filled. Like it's not just like a one-time thing. It's, it's you do it and you do it and you do it and you seek it. And it's a constant inflowing because as God pours into you, you pour out to others. And that's just the flow of the Spirit. And so that's how we understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to be uh, uh, an experience of uh, reception of the fullness of God, but one that doesn't just happen once, but one that's an ongoing way of life, really, this, this constant sense of filling. And it may be accompanied by, the, by speaking in tongues. It may be accompanied by something else, like prophecy. It may be accompanied by a gift that um, is other than prophecy in tongues. Uh, but what God does do is when he does fill his people with his spirit, we should expect that the gifts of the spirit will be operating, because it's the gifts that come through the Spirit, it's the fruit that comes through the Spirit, that, that fruit we should be seeing, all of that should be mm -hmm. characterizing the people of God who are baptized in His Spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's, um, the, the most distinctive thing that, about that position is that we don't see baptism of the Spirit as a one-shot deal, whereas in Pentecostal charismatic circles, they tend to have the idea that once you're baptized in the Spirit, bam, you've got it now, and, mm -hmm. and, and it, it you can be walking on cloud nine the rest of your life, and you know, and we don't see it like that. In fact, the disciples are baptized in the Spirit in Acts two, but then in Acts four, as they're praying in this room here, it says mm. that they are all filled with the Spirit, yeah. so they're filled again. 
And, and so it's an ongoing thing that we're supposed to always be seeking. And I think, you know, when John says that he'll be baptized with the Spirit and fire, he's using kind of a parallelism there. Those aren't two separate things. The Spirit is the fire. And so one way to know that you're filled with the Spirit or baptized in the Spirit is that you're on fire. I mean, I think that's like they're on fire. And you can notice it. That's why in Acts uh, 6, when the disciples need some help to take care of the practical needs of the church so they can be into the Word, they say, find us six people, six men who are uh, filled with the Spirit. Uh, and then say, now ask them if they spoke in tongues. It just says, look around and find six people who are filled with the Spirit. You can tell. This person's on fire. That person's got the fire I, I, I've got in them. And the, the fruit is there. Maybe the, some of the gifts are there. But there's a passion for Jesus. And uh, so we're all supposed to be uh, seeking that, wanting more of that over and over again. Yes. Paul, in your answer, you mentioned prophecy. Mm-hmm. And we have a person who would like to um, be given a proper view of what prophecy really is. Okay. Um, I've heard it said that uh, the way the Bible uses the, the concept of prophecy, it can either be uh, forthtelling or foretelling. In other words, it can be, one could talk about uh, prophecy as bringing the word of God to people, something we might call preaching or something. You're, you're bringing, bringing the word, you're, you're, you're foretelling. The, the, God anointed speech. Absolutely. Um, then there's also what we usually think about prophecy, which is foretelling. And that, this is uh, clearly at this moment, this is a supernatural piece of knowledge that the person couldn't have on their own about something in this world that as they share it, uh, it's, a, it's a demonstration that, that God ha- God's involved here because this is not, not normal human, human knowledge. Um, and you know, I know uh, through the life of Wooden Hills, the gift of prophecy has often played uh, an important role for us here. Um, our, you know, our executive pastor, Janice Rowling, um, was given the gift of prophecy by God. Was it like, I think it was just actually before she joined staff, wasn't it? Like right, the, right at the same time. Right around the same time. And, um, freaked her out. Totally freaked her out. Uh, Apparently, she, she says, on a Monday through a Friday, a work week, she wasn't working here yet, um, she w- would leave work, and every single day that week, driving home, she'd get this very strong picture in her head that uh, made no sense to her. And each, like, so Tuesday, she got the first picture again that she got on Monday, and a second one, and each day would add one. So that by Friday, she said, she got home and she was scared because she doesn't remember driving home. These were such intense things. And when she came and shared them with the pastoral team, there was a lot of deep biblical imagery. And she, she didn't know the scriptures that well at that time. Things she could never have she known. She sure doesn't. <laughs> uh, and these she prophetic doesn't. words were very shaping of, of, of uh, really God's call for this church. So we've, we've, we've benefited, I think, from both forthtelling, you know, Greg being a primary preaching voice here in this place, uh, and, and foretelling through Janice's gift of prophecy, um, God's really shaped our church in that way. Well, I mentioned that she doesn't have much Bible knowledge because a consistent thing about this is she'll come to Paul and me and she'll say, now, is there a guy, a, a Yehu or something like that in the Bible, or, you know, Balthazar? Or, or, and, and she doesn't know the Bible, but she gets these biblical images. And, and, and then it turns out that, you know, the things she was getting with that person, that person in Scripture and something very meaningful to us. Uh, the one thing I'd add to what Paul said is this. Uh, it's not just the gift of preaching or, you know, this foretelling. Uh, you, 
all, that's a gift that's available to all, to be able to uh, and be open and ask God to speak through you uh, yeah. to whoever you have influence in your life. Sometimes God can give you a word that just lands. It's a God-anointed word. That's it. It, just, it will land on someone. Um, and uh, and that, that can be used by all. The other thing that is, I think, really important to note is this. Like, w- most people, if, when you hear the word prophecy, you thought something like a crystal ball, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a piece of knowledge about the future. And it's widespread, and it's been in the church from almost the beginning. Here's the thing. The Greeks had this view of prophecy. They were into divination like crazy. They consulted the gods for everything. And they had all these different means of doing it, some of them very, very gross, like cutting up an animals and depending on how the way the guts fell out would determine you know, your future on this. And they had priests or specialists in this. Read Cicero's uh, thing on the gods. Or don't. Uh, or, 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 or even better, his, his, his Cicero uh, on fate. Uh, and he just talks about this. He thought it was all silly. But it, it was, it, the, it, it, Greek culture was immersed in divination, in the occult, in consulting gods, the, the De- temple of Del- Delphi. Um, and, and so they had this idea that the gods have, uh, you know, can, can see the future. And so by consulting the gods, we can get information about the future. And um, that was their idea of, def- of prophecy. And it's the only definition they had. Now, the Hebrews had a very different understanding of it. It was primarily foretelling, but sometimes you have prophecies about the future. But even there, most of the time, it's not about something that's going to, is fated to happen. It's a warning about what will happen if things don't change. And that's why God says, whenever I give a prophecy about a nation, if they'll change, I'll change. You know, if I promise blessing, if they turn wicked, then I'll change my mind and bring destruction. So it's, even when a, like a word comes uh, to us about something that seems to be about the future, we don't take it as sort of, oh, this is fated. Like, oh, it's fated, we're going to have this building, even though we had some prophecies about it. It rather is, is, is God saying, move in this direction. Move in this direction. Pay attention to this. And, and so it's not this mystical crystal ball thing. In our culture, we still have the Greek prophecy going on all over the place. Tarot cards, you know, tea leaf reading, all that other stuff. Stay away from it. That's what the Bible calls divination. And you're trying to get knowledge that humans aren't supposed to have. Mm. Uh, but the other kind of prophecy we really want to have, and that's uh, speaking the Word of God. And as long as this is on, I'll just say this. I've been in churches where people have really valued prophecy, and I think it actually was, was flowing, like in really some, some, some foreknowledge stuff that clearly was God. But I think when one has that kind of gift, and on other types of gifts, um, one has to exercise humility. Um, I, I think a number of people began to sort of get this reputation yes, that they hear from God, and most of us don't. And so we got to go to them. Ooh. And then that, that can get to be heady stuff. Yeah. That, and that can turn one into... So, and, and then one gets like, I do hear from God. And thus saith the Lord. And he said, you know, and we got to be super careful Mm. with that stuff. Um, I think humility, uh, Paul says the the spirit of the prophets is subject to the prophets. In other words, if you have that gift, um, it's never a lone ranger gift. It's not the kind of thing you can go around and tell people thus saith the Lord stuff. You bring it for discernment to the community and you leave it right there. And, and you don't invest your worth about whether it's received or whether it happens. You're just offering a gift. And as soon as our egos get caught up in this, a lot of crazy stuff can happen. Yeah. It's good. So kind of like a follow-up, um, this person wants to know, how do you respond to a person who is convinced that they've heard from God that they're supposed to divorce their spouse, mm. marry someone new, 
get a bunch of money, have a huge mansion, and a bunch of goodies. Wow. Right. <laughs> Share the wealth. Share the profit, to profit. You know, uh, yeah, the criteria, and I, I have heard crazy things done. People claiming God told them to divorce their spouse. Go back and marry the gal that you were dating in high school, who also was married with two children. But see, you know, they, they, that was God's plan A for them. But they didn't hear from God because they got busy fornicating. So they missed the will of God. Now they married these loser people. Uh, and now they finally realize that they missed the call back then. So they're going to dump these loser people and they're going to go back. What? Uh, uh, yeah, so here's the thing. Uh, uh, don't. <laughs> the criteria is, is always, you know, what, is, this, is this word consistent with the character of Jesus? Is it consistent with the will of God as it's revealed in Jesus and throughout Scripture? You know, does it line up? And if it doesn't, I don't care how certain you claim you are, uh, it, it's not a, a God-ordained prophecy. Maybe it comes from uh, the, a different spiritual realm, uh, if you're thinking those kind of thoughts. But uh, um, uh, people are... We are, we are all incredibly capable of rationalizing any behavior. If we want it, you know, we want this, but we also want to stay related to God. So somehow in our, we can, and the smarter the person is, the better they are at this. They can twist it and somehow make it God's will. And we can talk ourselves into that and even give it divine authority. And we always have to be on our guard against doing that with ourselves, like kidding ourselves, justifying ourselves. Um, there's actually all this neurological evidence now that, that most of the reasons we give for the actions we do come after the actions. We act, and then we figure out why we did that. We're, we're always justifying ourselves. The brain is really good at that. And it, and it can do it for any sin that you could possibly imagine. So we have to always guard against that. And if someone that we have a relationship with comes to us and says this, I would say in a loving way, you know, confront them about this. Um, could they be either deceiving themselves or even coming under the deception of the enemy? Because uh, it's that's not consistent with what's revealed. Oh, God. Thank you. Um, in regards to the Holy Spirit, what do you guys consider to be the history or the timeline of the Holy Spirit from creation until today? Like, was the Holy Spirit active during the Old Testament and the intertestamentary period and after Pentecost? Because it seems as if the Spirit is quiet or inactive for great periods of time. Hmm. You well, ever thought about that? I mean, when you think about the timeline, sort of the biblical timeline of the Spirit, as Greg mentioned earlier, uh, the Spirit is there in the second verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, right? Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and uh, the Spirit was hovering over the waters, right? So right away, the Spirit is there. Hovering. Oh, whatever. <laughs> I was, I was He's using, from Canada, and there's certain words he still does, he, he doesn't speak American. I was speak using, American. I was using the literal Hebrew there. The little, yeah. <laughs> Hoover. Hoover. We have a Hoover dam. The Spirit hovers. Okay, thank Hoover's you, not hover. Thank you, Greg. It was, it was floating there, well, that whatever egg. it was doing, right? And, um, and clearly, something new happens. I mean, uh, Jesus comes, right, is the anointed one. There's this new, everything from a, a new baptism to uh, Jesus eventually baptizing the Spirit. So, but you almost get this feeling like sometimes, like, well, so he was there at creation. He was there with Jesus. What happened to the Old Testament? And then the intertestamental period, which is like that roughly 400-plus year period between the two the two parts of our Bible. Um, but the Holy Spirit stays active and engaged 
in the Old Testament, though I would say it's in a different way. Um, one tends to see uh, language more like spirit coming upon people in the Old Testament. Not always. It's interesting that sometimes it actually does say he came in. But there's this, this sort of sense. Take the king, for example, the king of Israel. Whoever the king was, um, a prophet would come to that person, anoint them with oil, and then the spirit would come upon them. and would sort of stay upon them until they weren't king anymore. And once they weren't king, it would leave and go on the next king. So it seems like there's less of an intimate, permanent sort of state of affairs mm-hmm. for the spirit. And he's, he's, he's on the king. He's not on everybody. Right, right. That's that amazing. Sense, when Jesus comes when the day of Pentecost happens, Acts chapter 2, and Peter says, oh, this is what Joel talked about. And the Spirit of God we poured on all people, on the old and the young, on the male and the female, on the servants. Uh, there's this rich, yeah, yeah. thick dimension to the Spirit. People that in the Old Testament you'd never consider would be the Spirit coming on them, let alone in them. In, yes. And so, and yeah, so there's, rare, there, there's episodes where all of a sudden the Spirit kind of breaks out. He gives gifts to, you know, the builders of the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's always been the giver of gifts. Uh, but uh, the, the people who really get this anointing are few and far between. Whereas now it's everybody, Ali Ali and free. And I, personally, I think what's going on there, I think in Genesis... One and two, just the first two chapters before the sin thing happens, right? I think we get a clear picture of what God intended for us, for human beings. Because it says in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, that God created us in his image, in his likeness. Um, and see, if, if, you under, if you hear those words from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, the culture in which the Bible was written, you know that what an image of God is, what's well, one of two things. It's either a statue that's in a temple what we would call an idol, because that's what pagans called their idols were images of their God. Or it's the king, because the king was seen as this special person that a God would come upon, but not all people, right? And what Genesis does is it blows that apart and says, no, no, God's image isn't a statue. It's not an idol, which is why God is always against idols. Nor is it just about the king. It is about every single human being's calling to be filled with the Spirit of God, because here's, here's my image is... Like God's this, this invisible presence who wants to make his presence visible in this world but can only do it by something that's visible. And we are that visible body that when God enters us as his people and we begin to express his will in ways, we become little images of the triune God and his love. Like that was the plan. But as soon as Genesis 3 comes and we say no to that and yes to us becoming our own God, basically until Jesus comes and solves that problem, we're not able to function as, that, uh, as the images of God were meant to be. But Jesus comes now, solves the sin problem, brings the Spirit, we're the temple, and we can now finally begin to live the lives of the images of God we're always meant to be. So that when I look at you and you look at me, we see the triune God reflected in the ways we live and love. And of course, and, and, that's always less than perfect, right? We're all growing in that, but it's something, no, it's something more. I, I actually more. have arrived, okay? So. Well, other than you. Okay, good. I just want to Though Shelley told me something. <laughs> Shut up. The, I, you know, and that's part of the whole, the whole point, of, at least one aspect of the Old Testament, and this is why the Spirit kind of hung back some, was because God had to first demonstrate that you can't do this on your own. So he gives them all these laws. And Paul tells us that the laws are there because they're going to expose our sin and show our you know, inability to keep the law and relate to a God who's a lawgiver. And so uh, now that Jesus comes, 
the Spirit comes into our heart and He empowers us to live this out. That's why you even have prophesied in the Old Testament that you know, there will come a time when God will write His laws on their heart and His Spirit will abide within them. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference between Spirit and grace. Instead of law, we have grace because instead of on our own, we have the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, two last questions. Gosh, we're um, down that time. I know. So if, we're, if we are living together with the Spirit flowing through us, and the Holy Spirit is alive and active today, His presence is with us, how would you guys um, counsel a small group who wants to begin with one another to exercise the gifts? With one, do the, are there any parameters they need to set up, or should they just go for it and see what happens? I'd say go for it. See what happens. Just go for it. No, the, the biblical parameters, you know, would, would be there. Uh, you know, to take read through First Corinthians twelve through fourteen, and you know, just say we're going to do it decently in order. Uh, but really, for small groups who are, this is the first time you're trying this, uh, chaos is not what you need, need, need to worry about. Probably, uh, it, it's it's uh, uh, too much hesitancy in stepping out. And so there, I would just encourage groups to relax. Um, you're, 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 you're experimenting with this. Uh, don't think that, you know, there's no judgment here. Um, and just share what, you know, open yourselves up to God. Ask God for the gifts. Be zealous for them. Uh, you want to minister to one another. And then when you feel a prompting uh, to either, whether it's with a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge or, you know, want to pray healing for somebody or, you know, prophetic word, uh, step out on that. Step out on that and, and just share it and, and see what happens. And more often than not, groups that try that, some of it at least lands. It's like, whoa. You know, and, and at the end of the night, you'll, you'll say, so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so are really in a better place because we let the Spirit minister through us. And so I encourage groups that if, if you're just a bunch of friends who get together or you just read the Bible or whatever you do, start sprinkling in times where you set aside to pray and you listen mm. to God. Uh, so often in groups, we pray, we're, we talk to God, but we don't ask these, wonder, does God have something he wants to say to us or share with us? And that's where the gifts become very valuable. Can they, do you feel like they can figure that out amongst themselves or do, do they need like an outside pastoral source to help them? Well, I, I, I know many groups that just that do this on their own to start, you know, if, if you ask the father for bread, he's not going to give you a scorpion. And so, uh, it does encourage folks to... Now, it, it, maybe the, I, I also have seen it where there's a person who facilitates this. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you're dealing with a lot of shy people, that can really be helpful. But I, don't, I wouldn't say that that's necessary. Okay. It really is. I, Greg hit, you know, touched on this. that Really, this is a phenomenon. Uh, when you come together and, let's say, try to practice this in a group, um, what you should be doing is doing something together that all of us, hopefully, are growing in separately. And that's what you call practicing the presence of God, or as mm -hmm. you wrote in your, what's your little book, uh, Perfect present, present Perfect. Present Perfect. Like, so much of our lives, particularly in this culture, so much of our brain space, uh, so much of our inner life is taken up by noise and sound and distraction and all this stuff without stepping back sometimes and finding space just to listen. I, mm -hmm. I remember um, this one summer, I was going through a tough summer in my life, in my 20s, that I it was really out of pain. I was just wanted to be alone with God. But that's a summer that even to this day probably I heard God more than ever because I actually created space in my life um, to be alone with him and to do that. And I think that's always something that, that we're being called to do. And once, once 
hearing God's voice becomes a more and more natural thing. Then hearing God's voice for each other in group becomes a more natural thing. And I, I heard one gentleman that I really trust on this say, God's talking to us all the time. It's just we think it's us. <laughs> he, he said, often, you got to remember, when, you're, when your brain's functioning, you just put it on autopilot all day, you tend to think that everything that's going through your brain is just your thoughts. But really, there's at least three possible sources there. There's your thoughts, there's the enemy's thoughts, and there's God's thoughts. And you need to be aware that your brain is a context for conversation between all three of those forces going on. And so frequently, God speaking to us, this way he put it, he said, it's just God injecting his thoughts into your stream of consciousness. You would tend to think, that was just a thought that came into me. But wait a minute. How do you know that wasn't God just downloading something for you, either for you or for someone else that he wants to bless? And if we kind of wake up to that and cultivate that and then see what's the fruit of this, I think we can see a lot more of, of that sort of supernatural way of living because God is constantly talking to us through his spirit, wanting to do that. Good. I believe that deeply, and I'm a really bad example of remembering that. So. <laughs> that was honest. I think that's really good, and I think hopefully that will help this person who says, if the Holy Spirit lives in each of us, how come I never feel him, mm. I never hear him, or I never feel led by him? Uh, there's a lot of people. I, it seems like the last year I've encountered more increasing number of people who are in that kind of situation. Um, well, uh, yeah, it, it's a very good question. The, there is no one explanation for that. I, I'd have to get on the inside of a person's life pretty deeply to try to have any kind of a good guess on why that is the case. But not knowing why is the case, I, I, I can nevertheless give some direction about this. Um, you know, the, the, as Paul just said, our mind is, is, is the conduit. Uh, more specifically, our imagination. We're all, all, all thinking takes place. We think in images uh, and sounds, not with information. That's our image-making capacity. Our imagination is the inner sanctum, as it's been called throughout the church history. It, it's our meeting place with God. And what I find is that people who have an inability to feel, to really experience the things of God, um, whether it's the Holy Spirit or just feeling loved by God or whatever, they just, for whatever reasons, have never gotten in touch with their imagination. Um, God is, the Holy Spirit is speaking to them, but they just have never identified that or have, have just never gotten in tune with that. Um, so I, I encourage people who are in this situation to do this. First, First, it's important to know, just know that even though you're not experiencing this or hearing from God or feeling led by God or feeling loved by God, that doesn't change the truth that you are. You got to lock that in. Uh, Don't ever interpret that. If your heart is towards God and you want to hear from God and you want to walk with Jesus, then that wouldn't be possible unless you were a child of God. And so lock it in by faith. Um, that, that, that you are loved, you, you are loved, and, and that he, he died for you, and that he is with you, and he's in you. Um, there's just something off here that is preventing you from experiencing that. Uh, it's like p- people who you know, can't feel pain. You know, they're, they're, it doesn't mean they're not getting hurt you know, when they touch a stove. Uh, it just means there's something off in their body, but they, they just can't sense it. The second thing is I would encourage people then to, uh, and I talk about this in the, in the book, Seeing is Believing, um, to spend time imagining, getting, imagining Jesus saying to them and acting towards them the way he said, what he says about them and acts towards them uh, in, in, in Scripture. Just imagine that. Uh, 
see, hear, sense, feel Jesus. See it in his eyes, feel it in his hug, hear it in his voice. He loves you, and your name is attached to it. Um, What's going on there is actually the Holy Spirit is helping you. His job, one of his main jobs, is to bring us to Jesus, to point to Jesus. Not to point to himself, but to point to Jesus. And and this is one of the main ways that he can do that. And um, uh, the reason we don't feel things is because all of our feelings are associated with stuff that's going on in our imagination. And the more concrete our images are, the more they impact us. The more real they feel, and the more they impact us. Um, and, And you'll find that... Your faith begins, begins to be experiential and alive when you begin to intentionally use your imagination to get it to align up with what is true. Even if you're just imagining Jesus and the Holy Spirit's not involved, you're still doing a good thing because you're getting your mind to line up with what is true. So just think about, I mean, what if, see, like if I never thought about my wife when I wasn't right around her, if I never imagined her, I would never have any feelings towards her when I wasn't around her. But if I sit and I think concretely, imagine what she's doing right now, see it in her face, get as detailed and real like as possible with color and motion and sound, well, that pulls me then, and it, it, that, that impacts me. Because uh, it's as though I'm right there with her. And, and, and it, it moves me. And so, uh, so it is with the things of, of God. Uh, concretely envision what does it look like for you to be loved by God with an everlasting love um, and, and then you might find I, I, a person I shared this with about three months ago man he he, uh, he began to practice this and not only did he begin to actually sense God's presence uh, and, and start to have some feeling introduced into his life but it started to connect his whole emotional system his wife had always complained that he is just a stoic he just never has any emotions and he doesn't and he doesn't ever remember having many strong emotions. Uh, but he began to connect his, his... Some damage was done there that this began to repair. And he began to have, express more feelings towards his wife and towards life and towards a lot of things. Uh, that inner sanctum is so important. And so I'd get in touch with that. The Holy Spirit works in there. Ask the Spirit to make Jesus real to you. And then, then as you go about your, your day... Um, uh, don't, don't turn that imagination off. Keep space open, like Paul said, to be hearing from God. And he may speak to you through pictures or through a word or through just a little feeling and impulse or whatever, but uh, uh, pay attention to that and act on it. And that's what it is to be led by the Spirit. You know, when, when, when people in the Bible got visions, um, there's, there's, with a few exceptions, there's no indication that anyone other than they could see the vision. In fact, in, in two cases, it says explicitly that no one else could see the vision. Daniel had these visions, but only, he, he's the only one who got it. In fact, this, the word that's used for vision is the same word that's used for dream. And you know that no one else gets your dreams. It takes place in here. The only difference between a dream and a vision is that the vision happens when you're awake. And so pay attention to your vision. You know, what are you seeing in, in, the, in, in your inner sanctum? And that's when things start to get exciting. It is now 8.29. I don't think we have time to start another one because there's no second hand in the clock, but I'm willing to bet that it's less than 30 seconds. So I'll just use that by saying thanks for coming, you guys. Uh, I love it when people are interested enough in a topic to take a night out. Uh, one of the few remaining summer days that we have. And yet you sacrificed to be here. Greatest reward in heaven. We're Amen. giving indulgence points for this tonight. You guys are Hallelujah. totally saved. You are totally, totally righteous. Saved. You're super mature saved, double saved, triple saved. <laughs> mature so, Christian. God bless you guys. Uh, Father, as we leave this place, uh, keep us in remembrance of these things. Uh, help us to be in touch, in tune with the Spirit, and to be walking in the Spirit, seeking the fullness of the Spirit, wanting the gifts of the Spirit. And uh, God just use us in every possible way. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. Thank God you guys, guys very much. Have a good night.